As we sang in that last song, God, speak to us. You know, Father, speak to us. Now, I just want to ask you to do that now. Is just have an expectation of God to speak to you as I bring the word. Um, it's words that I've written, but I believe led by the Holy Spirit. So it's God speaking to us today. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you know each one of us by name. You know each and every circumstance that we find ourselves in. There's not one person here, Lord God, in this hall or watching online or listening to this later on that is not there by your design. And I just say thank you, Father, that you speak to us now and ask that we would open our ears to hear from you, open our hearts to receive from you. Thank you, Father. Amen. So Friday, the government delivered its mini-budget, claiming it's going to help everyone in this country during these trying times of escalating fuel prices, interest rates, and government borrowing. Now, I'm neither a politician nor an economist, so I'm not going to comment on the measures they are putting in place. In these turbulent financial times, where do we put our trust? In man's financial plans or in God's? Today's parable that we're going to look at has to do with financial issues, financial mismanagement and deception. It is often considered the most difficult parable to understand and interpret, and one that is often not taught on. So which parable am I talking about? It's the one that follows on from the parable I spoke on last Sunday when we looked at the parable of the lost son. Now in our Bibles, one's in chapter 15, the other's in chapter 16, when Luke originally wrote it, it was all one book. There were no chapter divisions. It's the parable of the shrewd manager, as found in, as I've said, Luke chapter 16 and verse 1 to 8. So let's read that now. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Now we will read further on in the chapter and have a look as we look at this parable. Um, but before we get this, looking at this parable, people often wonder how the master can praise the shrewd manager for what he did in discounting the amount owed, thinking that the manager was cheating the master out of what he was owed. 
you know, that it's a thousand bushels, make it 800. And the master said, that's being, un, uh, being shrewd. Now we need to understand the culture of the day. It's very different from our culture today. If we want to understand what's going on in this parable, we need to look back at the culture of that day and see what is happening here. The master was clearly a wealthy man, a man of means, a man who had done well for himself, and was in the position to have a manager look after his business interests so that he did not have to worry about them. He did not have to deal with the people who he helped by providing them what they needed to make a living and to look after their families. That was the role of the manager. The master did not employ the manager in the way that we understand a manager being employed by a business owner today. Today, a manager of a company will be on a salary, and often there will be bonus incentives for hitting targets and creating profits for the company. The banker's bonuses that are such a contentious issue in this country is a good example of that. At this time, a Jew was prohibited by Mosaic law to charge interest on money lent to another Jew. They could charge a Gentile interest, but not a fellow Jew. But like all shrewd businessmen, there were, there were ways to circumvent the law. They did not give money to their countrymen in need, but rather they gave them land to farm or orchards to tend. So they had produce to sell. The examples being used were wheat and olive oil. The law did not prohibit them charging interest on produce, only on money that was lent. The master was not the one to deal with the people who needed help. That was the responsibility of the manager. And it was in these dealings that the manager was to was able to create wealth for himself. He was the one who set the portion of the yield to be given as repayment to the master and informed the debtors, and normally a fair portion of that yield that they had to give went into his pocket. The Jewish tax collectors of the day who worked for the Romans operated in the same way. They collected more than what the Roman tax was and put the difference in their pockets. That was why they were rich and despised by their fellow Jews. They dealt in money. The manager dealt in produce. Now that we have an understanding of the system working at that time, let's get back to the parable and see how this impacts the way we now read and understand this parable. We don't know how long the manager had been working for the master and what it was that he was doing wrong but he was obviously doing something wrong that caused someone or several people to go to the master and make the accusations of him wasting the master's possessions. Who made the accusations to the master is not clear. Biblical scholars believe it would have been one or more of the master's friends or peers, not any of his servants or debtors. As the master doesn't doubt the accuser and acts immediately, infers that it was someone he knew well and trusted. The master immediately dismisses the manager and orders him to give an account of his dealings. In other words, he tells the manager, go and get the accounts and hand them in to him, hand them in to the master. And he will then have to either get a new manager or deal with the accounts himself. 
It's an instant dismissal. There's no second chance. So they must have been serious accusations. Also, there's no protesting from the manager, no form of negotiation to try and keep his position. So there's an acknowledgement to the master that he is guilty of the charges brought against him. On his way to get the accounts, the now, the now ex-manager is talking to himself and trying to work out how he's going to make a living and survive now. He's out of work. How do I go about making a living? He decides he's not strong enough to be a laborer, but it's more likely the case that he's too lazy to be a laborer. He doesn't want to exert himself. He's had a cushy job as the manager. He also decides he's too proud to beg. Again, the reality is that he does not qualify to be a beggar. He's not blind, crippled, missing a limb or limbs, or mentally deficient. So he wouldn't be recognized as a beggar. He's an able-bodied and, cap and capable of working. So what does he do now? There's one small factor in his favor, that none, and it's that none of the master's debtors know that he has been relieved of his duties and position as manager. So before returning to the master with the accounts, he calls in each one of the debtors. Most probably he sent out servants from, of the master's servants out to the debtors, summoning them to the manager. He wouldn't have done it himself. He sends messengers, servants. And so the debtors have got no reason to doubt that he's still doing the job that he is doing. He calls each one of them. The debtors would have been wondering why they were being summoned by the manager, as it wasn't harvest time. So there has to be something important that the master wants them to know. Also, the manager calls them in and deals with, with them one by one, making them feel that they are special and important. It's not a mass gathering of all the master's debtors, but a personal invitation just to them. Now, instead of something terrible being said to them, the manager has good news. He gets them to rewrite their bills, owed at a lower value than what they had originally been charged. He doesn't rewrite them. He gets the debtors to rewrite them. It's in their handwriting, and the master, when he sees the accounts, will recognize that. And in doing this, he ingratiates himself to these debtors who think he has persuaded the master to offer these reductions to his debtors. In the parable, Jesus only mentions two of the debtors to give examples of what he did. Scholars believe that although there's a difference in the discount given to the two debtors, a 50% discount and a 20% discount in the monetary value, um, the monetary value of those discounts would have been the same. 400 barrels of oil would have been equivalent to 200 bushels of wheat when paid for in cash. The master commends him for what he does for two reasons. Firstly, the manager has made the master look good in the eyes of the debtors without causing any loss of income to himself, to the master. Secondly, the master recognizes that the manager has been generous to these debtors because essentially he's given away the portion of the repayment that would have gone to him. He has forfeited his portion of the profits taking a serious financial hit by reducing the amount the debtors must pay. On the plus side, the manager has gained favor with these debtors by reducing the amount of produce they must give to the master. 
Now, some scholars believe that the manager would have made a deal with the debtors where the reduction that the manager had just given them would have been shared between the manager and the debtor. The debtor gets to keep more of the crop. The manager gets the rest of the reduction. So he didn't do himself out of all that was owed to him, only half of what would have come to him. And this also prevented the debtors from telling anyone about the deal that had been made. They are now indebted to him for this. In doing this with all the debtors, he has created income for himself until he can secure another position elsewhere. He has acted shrewdly, and this is what the master commends him for. Jesus finishes this parable by telling us not to act like the people of this world when it comes to wealth and money. Worldly people are shrewd when they're dealing with one another, but we, the people of the light, are not to be so. We are to be generous, as we will see as we read the next portion of this chapter. So let's read on, Luke chapter 16, verses 9 to 13. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We are to use the worldly wealth that God has given us to gain friends. In other words, be generous towards the people of this world so that we can befriend them. Through our generosity, we can show them that God loves them and has been generous towards them in all that He has done to make a way for them to come into the kingdom of God. We cannot take our wealth with us when we die, so be generous with it while we are alive. We are not only to be generous with the wealth God has given us, but we are also to be good stewards of it. Now the African Bible commentary says this about this portion of Scripture. Jesus uses the example of wealth to speak to disciples about social responsibility and stewardship. They are urged to be faithful in the use of their earthly wealth because it is on loan from God. If they cannot be trusted with earthly wealth and possessions, how can they be trusted with the true riches of eternal life? In these verses, Jesus applied the idea of stewardship to material possessions. The reasons why the use of wealth is tied to eternal life is that you cannot serve both God and money. Discipleship means single-minded devotion to serving God with our earthly possessions while not neglecting to share our wealth with the community to meet needs. We can only serve one master. We need to choose who that master is. It is a choice that is given to everyone in the world. And it's a choice everyone must make. 
This does not mean that we cannot be wealthy. God is not against us being wealthy. He just wants us to be wise stewards with the wealth that He has entrusted to us. He has given us the ability to produce wealth. He has given us the ability to produce wealth. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18 says, But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms His covenant, which He swore to your forefathers, as it is today. Now, some people are very good at producing wealth, and others are not so good. I don't believe that God is that concerned with how wealthy we are or not. He's more concerned with how we deal with the possessions that He has blessed us with, be it much or little. You are a good steward of, you are a good steward of that which God has blessed you with, or are you, sorry, are you a good steward of, what, of that which God has blessed you with? Are you generous with what God has blessed you with? Some of the most generous people that I've met are those that have very little in comparison to what we have here. When we were in Malawi, and uh, you go out into the village where the people live hand to mouth. If their crops fail, they don't eat. And we would go out there, and they would bless us every time we went out there. We would always be offered a meal. We would always be given something to take home with us. And we had far more than what they had. And they were generous. And because of that, God looked after them. He took care of them. So are you generous with what God has blessed you with? This is what God is concerned about. And this is what we need to take away from this message. They say that wealth is relative. The more wealth, the more relatives. Yeah. Let's pray. And then we'll look at the discussion questions. Father, thank you that you speak to us about the possessions that you have given to each one of us to steward. You bless us, Lord. I know some people might struggle with that and say, but no, it's my hard work. But your word tells us you've given us the ability to produce wealth. And some people work really hard to make a lot of money. But they lose the plot, Lord, and are not generous towards you and to others. Father, help us to be those that are generous with what we have been given. Help us to be wise stewards. And help us to use what you've given us to be able to reach out to those who do not know you and share your love and your gifts with them. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. So, question time. Discussion questions. First one is, what did God say to you through this message? What did God say to you through this message? Secondly, how can you use your wealth to reach out to those who are not believers? Think about it. Ask God to show you. Thirdly, do you find it easy or difficult to be generous with what God has entrusted to you? If yes, why do you think that is? 
discussed that. And then thirdly, pray for one another as the Holy Spirit leads you. 